You are listening to a production of WRCT Pittsburgh. Any opinions expressed within are solely those of the participants and do not reflect the views of WRCT Radio Incorporated. Questions and comments can be addressed to the Public Affairs Director at PA at WRCT.org or by calling 412-621-0728. All right, it's January 23rd, and we're kicking off the spring semester here at WRCT with a new season of I Wonder. I'm your host, Ellis Robinson. And I'm your host, Daniel Tachik. The question for today's show, Daniel, what if we had a thermostat that could literally control the temperature of our atmosphere? Hey, seems like a pretty relevant question to me. This past year was one of the hottest years on planet Earth, and nine of the ten hottest years in recorded history have happened since the year 2000. Right. A thermostat, it sounds like a nice idea. Yeah, sure, but this Earth-sized thermostat kind of sounds a bit like science fiction, Ellis. Is this even possible? You mean, Daniel, is there something that humans could do to the Earth to fix temperatures exactly where we want them? Uh, yeah. I know, it sounds crazy. Yeah. But maybe it's not. Today we're going to bring you an interview we recorded this fall. We talked with a guy who's been thinking about this Earth-sized thermostat for quite a while geoengineering expert and CMU professor, Granger Morgan. Stay tuned, y'all. Today, we're joined by Professor Granger Morgan, who heads the Department of Engineering and Public Policy here. He's also the director of the Climate Decision-Making Center here at CMU. And today, we're going to be talking to him mostly about his work with geoengineering. And so with that, Granger Morgan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. So to start off conceptually, what is geoengineering? Well, actually, geoengineering is a word that's too broad to be terribly useful. The Royal Society ran a study a few years ago that uh, actually helped a great deal in in differentiating between two kinds of activities, something they called... Uh, uh, CDR, carbon dioxide removal, a variety of activities to actually remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and SRM, solar radiation management, a variety of strategies essentially to increase the amount of sunlight that's reflected back into space, something called the albedo. It's a very slow process, uh, any way you slice it, to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. On the other hand, it's a pretty fast process. Uh, to cool the Earth by putting very fine reflective particles into the stratosphere. For people that might not understand what aerosols do up in the stratosphere, in the simplest way, like how is that going to cool our climate? Okay, well, so sunlight comes in and hits the Earth. About 70% of it is immediately reflected back out into space from the ground, from clouds, from snow and other things. And 30% of it gets absorbed. And when it gets absorbed, it then can't get back out into space easily because while the atmosphere is transparent in the visible wavelengths, it's opaque in the infrared, that is, in heat. And, you know, if you warm up the surface of the planet and it tries to radiate energy back into space, it's like a radiator. It's going to heat, it's going to radiate in the infrared. And that energy gets trapped until the equilibrium temperature of the Earth rises enough so that the same amount, I mean, we've got to get that 
the same amount of energy back into space as, as is absorbed because otherwise we'd heat up very quickly and all fry. And so uh, what happens is the operating temperature of the entire planet rises a little bit and that's the so-called greenhouse effect, which is actually a very good thing because natural greenhouse warming, mainly from water vapor, but also from small amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is what makes this planet a, a pleasant and livable space. So I talked about 30% getting reflected back out into space. And if I can jack that fraction by just a couple of percent, then I lower the fraction that gets absorbed. And so other strategies that people have talked about are things like putting mirrors uh, in uh, uh, stable uh, orbital locations between us and the sun. This is obviously very much in the almost Buck Rogers kind of realm, and, but there are people, you know, who work on this. The, the, the reason I have focused princip principally on, on fine particles in the stratosphere is that that's almost certainly something that is feasible, that one could do, and what you're basically doing is adding a little bit of a mirror, a little bit more reflectivity to, to make sure that the light energy doesn't all get down and get abs uh, absorbed in the surface to cut back on the amount of absorbed energy. So to me, when I, when I first heard about this idea of injecting particles into the stratosphere and just having it spread over the entire globe, it, honestly, it just sounded kind of insane. Uh, so with that being said, where did this idea even go? come from? What's the story on how this came to be? Well, first of all, your reaction that this is sort of nuts is a very healthy reaction. It's the reaction that anybody with their head screwed on straight has <laughs> almost immediately. Though people have begun to try to study and understand direct and indirect effects that uh, uh, solar radiation management might have, I don't think we can be, certainly at this stage, we can't be at all confident that uh, if we were to do this uh, in terms of how things would play out. Now, the idea is, is, as I said, not at all new, and that's because anybody who's worked in climate science knows that aerosols uh, in the atmosphere play an important role in the radiative balance of the planet. And as a matter of fact, back when uh, the first discussions at the presidential level in this country occurred on climate change many uh, administrations back. The only strategy that got advanced was a strategy of, of uh, geoengineering for, for dealing with climate change. So have we witnessed this effect when volcanoes erupt? Yeah. Yeah, the last big explosion uh, resulted in about a half a degree reduction in average global temperature for uh, uh, over a year. Wow. And, so. and so, I mean, there's nothing hypothetical about this. We know it works. Now, we also know, as I said, that it's imperfect. And, and of course, you need to keep putting more fine particles into the stratosphere because they'll gradually uh, decay away. The other issue is that at some level, it's sort of a Faustian bargain. So I start doing this, and then I go a few decades, and CO2 concentrations continue to rise, but I'm putting in just enough to offset it. And then if for some geopolitical or other reason suddenly things stop, the stuff's all going to decay out quite quickly. And so rather than this very gradual increase in temperature, you're suddenly going to see a whopping big spike in the increased temperature. And while ecosystems are going to have enough problem dealing with the, the gradual growing temperatures, if you subject them to a whopping big increase, then, of course, it could be uh, ecologically disastrous. 
And the other thing is, as I said, you don't do anything to offset the continual rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, rising CO2, the, a substantial fraction of the order of half of the CO2 that goes into the atmosphere ends up ultimately being absorbed in the oceans. And so the oceans today are about 30% more acidic than they were in pre-industrial times. And if we keep going as we are at the moment, most of the coral experts that I talk with tell me that probably all coral reefs will be gone by the end of the century, simply because the, the polyps can no longer lay down the you know, the calcium carbonate structure. Yeah. So just to be clear, <clears throat> I mean, those effects of climate change are, they sound disastrous. And geoengineering has the potential to fix our temperature at some level below some certain ah, yeah, but point. The, but the example I was just giving you of acidification is, un, I mean, that would continue because you see geoengineering does nothing to offset the rise of CO2. And so that's a point that I guess you, it's, it's all, you try to make clear. And so this does some things, but it's not a it's not a perfect fix. That's right. I mean, if we got into a real jam, you know, there's if it turns out there's a climate cliff out there and we seem to be falling off it, this might be a way to to buy a bit of time. But I also think that, well, to be perfectly frank, in this country, the United States, I think there are <clears throat> a number of folks who are currently in the climate denial mode who philosophically are of a persuasion that the planet is for humankind to, you know, manage and dominate. And so if, if and when it finally gets, well, it will get to the point that these folks can no longer argue that there isn't climate change, at which point the response might be fine. Well, let's just go fix it. By which I mean, let's go engineer the planet. And at the very least, I would like to see us at a point where we understand these issues much better before, you know, either Americans or, or others around the world start making those kinds of arguments. At the moment, the amount of research going on is very modest, and so a number of us have argued for quite a while that uh, we really need an expanded program of research, both because there is the odds, there's growing odds that somebody somewhere might propose to do this, and we need to be informed to have a, a, an international discourse, but also because, you know, we ourselves might at some stage be forced to do a bit of it. Well, and this is something that you've written kind of extensively about in places like nature and foreign policy, advocating that we need more research so that we can understand the assured side effects that something like this would bring. And so I guess, can you talk to us about what are some of the things that we know that we don't know and some <laughs> of the consequences we could expect from doing something like this? Well, what we know we don't know is unclear. <laughs> but uh, so, for example, if I put fine particles in the stratosphere, depending upon the nature of the particles, uh, their surfaces might become catalytic sites for ozone destruction. We don't really know a lot about those processes. Uh, we don't know whether and how one can disperse uh, the right-sized particles. Uh, I mean, there's just a whole lot of things we still don't know. It certainly looks that you could do this quite inexpensively. It's also quite unclear how the, the distributional effects will work. Uh, I mentioned Kate Rickey doing a PhD with me. The bottom line on Kate's work is that if you set out at some stage to do solar radiation management, what would be optimal for, say, China will not be the same thing as what's optimal for India, and that over time they'll, the, the two will move away from each other. Now, 
They're both going to be climates that are much closer to today's climate than uh, than a climate 50 or 100 years from now. But still, it sounds like there's the basis for some interesting international disagreements there. Uh, the other thing that David Keith keeps reminding me of is that, uh, you know, not everybody in the world is going to find all aspects of climate change undesirable. And so one could imagine um, uh, some amazing arguments uh, uh, about, uh, no, no, don't put the climate back the way it was. I mean, I rather like the fact that, <laughs> that my, you know, really icy cold winters have gotten uh, significantly less severe. Okay, so I mean, I guess, are we as a society ever going to be comfortable enough that we could really think of doing this? I think it would take a, a real climate emergency. There are folks who are arguing that, oh, well, you ought to treat geoengineering just like any other climate abatement strategy and put it in a mix and do, you know, optimal calculations to figure out what's the most cost-effective strategy. Problem, of course, is that these sort of benefit-cost methods only make sense when you got a uniform set of values. And so, what you know, what my values are, and what the values of uh, a, a Quechua traditional Indian in the altiplanos of uh, of uh, Ecuador and uh, and Peru uh, may think is optimal, or what. Uh, Inuit in, uh, in, and other First Nation people in northern Canada think is optimal, maybe very, almost certainly is very different. So, so this notion that one can you know, do a model to estimate the optimal uh, climate policy, I think is just sort of nuts. Well, and yet, given all these things we don't know and all these different values of various players that could make some decision it sounds like what you're saying is that if someone had eight or ten million dollars, yeah, and they wanted to do this right now, they could. Am I understanding right. that right? There are individuals around the world with enough resources to unilaterally go do this. I don't think that's a serious issue, but it, but it gives you a sense of scale. But there are also major states which could be that uh, they could do this unilaterally. You know, it's not immediately clear how you could you could tell them cut it out, uh, which is another reason, though, why I think it's so important that you understand what can and can't be done and what the downsides might be, so that if and when we ever do get to the point of somebody unilaterally taking action, because, for example, precipitation patterns have shifted and they can't feed their populace, that at least we have the basis for an informed international discourse. I'm, I'm not worried about, you know, I mean, small island states, for example, are obviously at enormous risk from climate change. They're likely going to go underwater. But to be a little crude about it, the U.S. Navy can stop them from engaging in geoengineering. It's not clear the U.S. Navy can stop, you know, Russia or China or India uh, or Brazil from doing this should they uh, choose to. So if you, Granger Morgan, were the one calling the shots, what would the situation with climate have to be before you would say, let's do this? Well, uh, the question is, how many shots do I get to call? Do I get to call <laughs> shots right now on, on implementing a serious uh, abatement of CO2? Because if the answer is, yes, that's on the table, then I would start uh, 
out with major federal investments to get us over the hump and down, start down the learning curve on things like carbon capture and deep geologic sequestration, which we're going to need not just on coal plants, but also on, on gas uh, plants. I would uh, put enormously larger uh, efforts into using the energy we've got much more efficiently. And so if you allow me to, to call those shots as well, and we go a few decades and we've still got a problem, and, you know, there are uh, millions of people whose livelihood or, or even whose existence is at risk around the planet, then I could imagine a, a scenario under which collectively as, as a planet we might decide to do something. But I'm sure uh, not at the point of arguing that... Uh, we ought to be contemplating doing this today. One of the things that I don't think, though, that, that many people on Capitol Hill and in the general public understand is how different the climate problem is from the problem of local and regional air pollution. I mean, the, the residence time in the atmosphere of sulfate aerosols or, or other conventional air pollutants uh, is hours to days. And that's not true of greenhouse gases. I mean, if I put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the residence time is, is decades to centuries. So to stabilize concentrations, I have to dramatically reduce emissions by an order of magnitude. And I don't think most Americans have yet got that fact figured out, which is, and the system has enormous inertia. So we're building in, I mean, even if we could somehow stop all emissions today, we would already be committed to a significant amount of climate change, and we don't fully understand the climate system, and so hopefully we're nowhere near, you know, a sudden switch to a different, a totally different climate state, but we can't be absolutely confident of that, and so that's the other reason why I think this is something that needs to be studied. So it sounds to me like even thinking about doing geoengineering, correct me if I'm wrong, in your opinion, is kind of a last resort emergency type of action. Well, I certainly continue to think of it that way, but there are growing numbers of people in the world who have moved past that and are beginning to think of it as just one of several things that you do as a portfolio of strategies to deal with the climate problem. Daniel and I were talking about this beforehand. I guess one of the things that's I've always grappled with when thinking about geoengineering is regardless of whether we know everything about intended consequences or not, it's always going to be kind of a small subset of people making this one decision. And so just the idea that someone could wield that kind of power, I guess, over the environment. I don't know how to make sense of that. I don't know. It's, what do it's you a scary think thought, about it? isn't it? <laughs> and actually, we ran a workshop in Washington as part of our climate center just uh, uh, this spring on the management of knowledge about geoengineering. I, for a while, for example, was contemplating possibilities like not allowing private intellectual property for technologies to do this. I think I have been dissuaded from making that argument, but there, I mean, there have been a few folks who have patented ideas in the past. I, I frankly don't think that if, for example, a major aircraft company owned a patent on a dispersal or a, a strategy that, that there's much risk of their becoming a key player in the political process to urge adoption of, of this. On the other hand, you know, agriculturists across the Midwestern United States or in other vulnerable regions might well be. Uh, and so how these things would play out in the 
politics, especially of, of uh, representative democracies, is a, is a messy issue. But when I was talking about, I mean, I guess the, the two extremes are that, uh, you know, a, a country, perhaps not a particularly democratic country, decides unilaterally, okay, we're just going to do this because things have gotten so terrible. The other extreme, of course, is a UN or international-based negotiation where one says, oh, gee, sea level rise is inundating through storm surge of people all over the world, and uh, there are millions of people who can't feed themselves because climate change has gotten so severe and so on. And so one could imagine some sort of a collective decision uh, through international organizations to engage in this. I think we're a long way from it being even too useful to think about that. It is useful to think right now, though, about the governance and oversight of research. And my own v view, one that I have expressed to the House Science Committee and other work, in, in other places as well, is that all research in this area ought to be open. The world ought to be able to know what's going on, that it would be absolutely inappropriate for research to be going on as black programs in the, in the uh, uh, national security or intelligence communities, and that uh, we need to begin to develop mechanisms to make sure the world does know who's doing what and, and what's coming out of this work. And as a matter of fact, uh, this workshop I mentioned that we ran in Washington uh, uh, was exploring those issues, and uh, several of us are now writing a, a paper to, uh, to try to articulate uh, some of those arguments. Hmm. Well, Granger, this has been really, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We're so happy to have you on the show, and thanks for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I guess the answer is that we could probably do it. We could probably build this Earth-sized thermostat. Yeah, but think of all the questions that we didn't answer. Like, what are the uncertain consequences here? Do we destroy the ozone hole? Who decides what the temperature would be? And does this start World War III? I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my mind is kind of exploding right now. I, I don't have the answers, but, but people are thinking about all these questions right now. People like Granger Morgan here at CMU. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. This interview was recorded as part of the Generation Anthropocene Project. Yeah, and a special thanks to all the people that make that podcast happen. Mike Osborne, Miles Trayer, Leslie Chang. They're at Stanford University and KZSU. Uh, and they first aired this interview. Check out their podcast, Generation Anthropocene. And a special thanks for Granger Morgan for coming on the show to offer his insight. For WRCT and I Wonder, I'm Ellis. And I'm Daniel. Take care, y'all. You are listening to a production of WRCT Pittsburgh. Any opinions expressed within are solely those of the participants and do not reflect the views of WRCT Radio Incorporated. Questions and comments can be addressed to the Public Affairs Director at PA at WRCT.org or by calling 412-621-0728.